0: Well, if you have been gone over the past several weeks just to catch everybody up to speed, we have spent time, actually over the past couple of months, reading selected stories from what are commonly known as the historical books of the Bible. In particular, we have been focusing on, we we have read several accounts from the book of 2 Samuel that describe parts of King David's life and reign. And in those stories, we've found some good and we've found some troubling accounts of his kingship and his personal life. Well, today the lectionary takes us actually to the next book of the Bible, the book of First Kings, which is also part of these texts referred to as historical books. And in this story, we are going to read about the end of David's life and rule. Now, as we read these stories from the historical books, I think it's important to recognize that these aren't like other modern works of history that we might be familiar with, due in large part to the, the fact that they are theological treatises, and they are commenting on and interpreting historical events through the lens of faith in Yahweh. And so, in so doing, they're prompting questions from the reader like, well, what can these events, what what can these stories that we're reading about teach us about life, and what can they teach us about God's revelation to humanity? And then for us, we can ask a similar question. We try to determine then, well, what can these stories mean for those of us who follow Jesus? And so these theologically focused works of history about the Jewish people are still quite meaningful, even for those of us who are not Jewish, because we have the conviction that we serve the same God who is described in these stories that we are reading, the God who is fully revealed in Jesus Christ. You may remember that story that's told in John chapter 5, where Jesus is responding to some people who are questioning some of his methods of ministry. And as a part of that response, in John chapter 5, verse 39, he says, This, you search the scriptures. Because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is those scriptures that are bearing witness about me. So this is all pointing ahead to Jesus Christ. And so we approach these texts with that understanding. So that is just a a way to catch everybody up to speed and explain why we are spending time here over the past couple of months. So today we turn our attention... Again, to the next book in the Bible, the book of 1 Kings. We are going to pick it up in chapter 2. We're going to start reading verse 10, today's text. We're going to back up and cover the first nine verses of this chapter, but we'll start at verse 10. We read this. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Now, Some translations here say David rested with his fathers. What does this mean? David died. He died and was buried. He died just like we all will. Immortality is one of those things that continues to be beyond our reach as human beings. It doesn't matter how powerful we are during our lives. It doesn't matter how much we can control while we are breathing. The one thing that is completely out of reach is escape from physical death. We can delay it. In some cases. We can develop habits that maybe make life more enjoyable and even prolong it to some degree, but eventually even those good habits are not going to take us around death. David, although he was an incredibly flawed character as we've seen over the past couple of weeks, he was also quite powerful. He was undeniably important in the history of God's people and yet Even this quintessential religious and royal figure was unable to take a detour bypassing physical death. And neither will we. You know, over the past several weeks in preparation for this morning, I had Jason Isbell's song If We Were Vampires on repeat. And if you haven't heard it, you need to. I think it's one of the best love songs, even though it's also one of the most sad songs that I've heard. But It really captures this tension in a a beautiful way. Living with an understanding that we are all heading to death is what makes or gives us the ability to love well, gives us the ability to live in a meaningful way. This is part of what we read about at the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes, where the author says, Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. He asks the question, what do we gain by all of our toil at which we toil under the sun? The answer is, we gain nothing. And then he goes on to make this statement, a generation goes, a generation comes. This is the cycle of life. Those who are young now are eventually going to be the generation that is old and waiting for their turn to depart. This is not comfortable to think about at all but I think it's necessary because a realization of this fact leads us to a place of reflection where we can ask the question well what am I spending my life chasing after because I think a lot of things that we spend our time our energy and our finances on in the end probably aren't worth all that much and so it's appropriate to live with the end in mind not not in a morbid or an all-consuming way, but birthed out of a desire to live wisely, to live deeply and invest in the things that matter, and to spend each and every day enjoying and experiencing God through this life we've been blessed with. As has often been said, at the end of our lives, we, we probably won't regret things like not spending more time on the internet. Like when I get to the end of my life, I'm probably not going to wish I had spent a few more hours scrolling through Twitter. I've done that plenty. We're probably not going to wish or regret that we didn't make more money. If we have regrets at the end of life, it's probably going to be connected to things like how we interacted with and related to other human beings. And so we live with the end in mind. And I think that helps us to stay focused on what is important. Let's continue reading in verse 11. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. And so we see another transition has taken place in power. This time it's a bit simpler. It's a bit more orderly than that transfer of power from Saul to David, which is where we started this journey of reading about David's life several weeks ago. And perhaps this transfer of power is simpler because David is passing the reins of control over to his own son. It's probably also helped by the fact that David is prepared for this. He's Knows, he knows that he's about to depart, and he has the opportunity to share his final thoughts and his final instructions for his son. And on the cusp of his death, and on the cusp of his son's newfound glory and authority, we actually find a portion of David's final thoughts if we back up to the beginning of this chapter. So we back up to ch- uh, chapter 2, verse 1, and we read this. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules and his testimonies. As it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do, And wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So we see David here begin his final instruction to his son Solomon with his feet firmly planted in the Mosaic law and faithfulness to Yahweh. He begins with, be strong, walk in God's ways, keep his commandments. Do this and you will be set up for success. Now, it's no coincidence that we are covering this material right on the heels of some rather candid and negative portrayals of David over the past several weeks. Because some of the stories that we've read recently may make us think that This advice is rather foolish from David. I mean, are you kidding me? Who are you to give this advice to your son? Do you have any room to talk and lecture anybody about Torah observance? About something like faithfulness to God? But in some ways, I think those dark moments that we've read about from David's life... Add a little bit of weight to his advice and his warning here. It's as though David is saying, I'm I'm not warning you or telling you this just because it sounds nice in this moment. But this has been real in my life. I've been there. So Solomon, learn from my mistakes. Be faithful. Do what I didn't do in these different instances. Learn from me. You know, Tim Keller once suggested that our wisdom tends to be at its peak when our bodies are failing. And I think there's some truth to that on a couple of different levels. First of all, in that experience often brings wisdom. Not always, of course. I think it was Oscar Wilde who said, with age comes wisdom, but sometimes age comes alone. So it doesn't always bring wisdom, There are outliers to be sure, but generally speaking, the older we get, the more insight and wisdom we have to impart because we have more experience. And increased experience often brings increased insight, at the very least. Those who have lived a long time have a broad range of experiences, and those experiences, the the successes and failures... They've experienced loss and gain. They've experienced sorrow and joy. And those varied experiences can then enable, a lot of times, a more objective outlook on the present. So while David was far from an exemplary leader at all times in his life, he did also model some admirable and God-honoring behavior at other times. He failed, yes, but... Eventually, he was able to see the error of his ways. He was able to look at his failure and be moved to repentance. He was open to that correction and open to change. And he seems now, at the end of his life, to want to ensure that his son Solomon could learn from some of the mistakes he made. And could avoid some of those pitfalls that trapped him. So he says, Solomon... Stay close to the Lord. Stay close to the Lord. Keep the important things like faithfulness to Yahweh. Make that a priority in your life. That is the only way your life and your reign will be prosperous. And so that really seems to be the motivation for David here. He says, stay close to Yahweh. That's the only way that things are going to go well in your life and through your rule. He says, take it from me. He says, I've tried the alternative. I've felt the effect of that path and those choices. i felt it the rest of my life. Learn from me. You know, I I think we need people like that and moments like that in our lives. Especially those of us who are a bit younger. We need folks with some age and experience that can come alongside us and help us navigate some of the choppy waters of life and so i would encourage you to find them be willing to listen maybe approach them and ask if you can develop an intentional relationship with them and get their advice and learn from them the the folks who are older in our congregation they are a vital part of our community for a variety of reasons, but one of those is the experience and the insight that they can offer. It is valuable. It's valuable, so find them. So this is his first piece of advice to his son. Remain faithful, stay upright. In the next section, we find now his advice for dealing with particular people from his past reckoning with that lingering past we pick it up in verse 5 we're going to read a a pretty lengthy section with some wild names so bear with me verse 5 moreover you also know what joab the son of zeruiah did to me how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of israel abner and the son of ner and amasa the son of jether whom he killed avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist, and on the sandals on his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom your brother." And there is also with you Shimei, the son of Gira, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him. And you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Wow. So this is the second and final section of David's farewell address to his son. It begins with the advice, remain faithful, stay upright, be a decent human being. Which actually seems to conflict quite a bit with this final message here, his advice for dealing with people from his past seems a bit vindictive, if not petty. David remembers people from his life and instructs Solomon regarding them. And in these instructions, I think we begin to once again see the humanity of David coming through. begins with, keep the law live in an upright manner, remain faithful to Yahweh, and here it is, yes, do those things, but don't forget these people. And don't forget the nature of my interactions with them and let that carry over into your reign. Remember, remember Joab, my right-hand man, the guy that did my bidding and effectively implemented the death warrant for Uriah? The guy who was faithful to me to a fault. Yeah, but he also did these things. So do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. These other people deal loyally with them, but not Joab. He he did this thing that upset me. So make sure you kill him. It seems a bit unpleasant, right? You know, I was watching a a Cardinals game, which, there's got to be a better segue, but nonetheless. I was watching a a Cardinals game recently, as I occasionally do. And Nanette isn't in here to challenge my use of the word occasionally in that sentence. But I was watching a game, and during the broadcast, the story was told of a major league player who offered this advice to young prospects who were trying to make their way out of the minor leagues and into the major leagues. And his advice was be respectful and be kind to those that you interact with in the minor leagues, even as you're leaving to go to the major leagues because you're inevitably going to meet them again when you are on a rehab assignment or when you have been demoted. So his advice was be kind and respectful on your way up because you're going to meet those same people on your way down. The the point being that our actions aren't isolated or constrained to this moment. And I think that's one of the major themes that we find throughout the David narrative. It's the lingering effects of the past. It lingers for David. It lingers for others. His past continues to impact people and it must be reckoned with. And at the end of David's life, for him it meant punishing those who deserved it and rewarding others. So even now, on David's deathbed, uttering his final words to his son, with all of his life experience, the lessons he had learned from his failures, an understanding that he was the recipient of Yahweh's grace and forgiveness, and yet he is still depicted as a character of overwhelming contradictions. He's a man who understands the importance of faithfulness to Yahweh. But perhaps even now he is still struggling to embody some of those values. And we are then just left in the story story with the narrator giving us this information and then allowing us to try to draw some conclusions and think about what this might teach us. And I think there are a couple of options for what This could teach us a couple of things we could consider, and we might begin with the question, well, is it possible that David understands the importance of faithfulness to Yahweh and everything that entails? He's seen how important that has been in his life, but he is also feeling the tension that comes from the weight of responsibilities associated with leading the kingdom. Faithfulness to Yahweh is great, But there are also all of these other practical matters to consider and sometimes the way Yahweh might be leading isn't the most practical in terms of propping up the kingdom. And I think this is actually a similar question that we need to ask ourselves as followers of Jesus because I think this tension exists for us as well. Because the way that Jesus is leading us The values that his kingdom is calling us to embody are a lot of times not at all practical. Maybe they seem foolish. Maybe they cause us to live in such a way that grates against our most natural inclinations. And so we have a choice to make when we feel that tension. We we can either move on as though the tension doesn't exist or we can work at reconciling that. Brian Zond once wrote in a blog that we cannot help Jesus repair the world and build the true house of the Lord. So maybe this takes our minds back to the story we started with a couple of months ago from 2 Samuel chapter 7 where David has all of these grand plans to build the Lord a house, a place that the Lord could reside. Well, We can't help build the true house of the Lord if we remain fascinated with the violent ways of David. Now, I'm not at all interested in turning David into the scapegoat for all of Israel's problems. For every troubling story we read about David, we also find one in which he is depicted as an admirable character, a a genuine worshiper of his God, a deeply committed servant who is willing to face his failures And move on in repentance. He was undeniably important in the story of God's people. And the coming of their Messiah. But he was also a man of contradiction. As an individual who was walking out that tension of following God. And yet still struggling against his own flesh. Even at the end of his life. What about you? Do you feel that tension? I've experienced that tension actually quite a bit throughout my life, and I still do at times. I think we all will. Because faithfulness to the way of Jesus is a very difficult path. So this is what I want to encourage us to think about as we reflect upon the end of David's life was a deeply conflicted character in the story. As we read this, we don't find explicit, applicable principles that we can cut out of the story and perfectly translate into our lives, but I do think we can mine the rich depths of this story and reflect upon some common struggles. And I think one of those struggles that is always near the surface in stories like this and in the story of our own lives is that element of contradiction. The the tension that we feel trying to live as a disciple of Jesus in a world that is discipling us in all of these other ways. You know, in his book, Resurrection, Rowan Williams made the statement, the gospel will not ever tell us that we are innocent, but it will tell us that we are loved. Feel that tension there. And maybe we could add to that this morning that the gospel doesn't tell us that we are free of contradiction or hypocrisy, although we aim to be. But the gospel, in the middle of our profound contradictions, tells us that we are loved. And that is good news for us. Because the contradictions we think about, it's not just in David. It's not just in those that that we can't stand, you know, in our own lives, those in whom those contradictions are obvious and glaring. It's in us. It's in me, it's in you, it's in all of us. And that's not to excuse hypocrisy or to become indifferent to our own contradictions, but I think becoming aware of that fact would... Help us recognize and help us start each day from a place of vulnerability and honesty. Being willing to come to terms with our own contradictions. You know, I don't think our main struggle is against hypocrisy or contradiction per se, but maybe against the superiority and the arrogance that our contradictions are wrapped in. But because when those contradictions are wrapped in that air of superiority we're never going to be able to face them head on. We're never going to be able to be honest about them and, and try to resolve them, but they're just there. They exist. But if we could face those with honesty and vulnerability, we could then begin the difficult task of trying to move beyond that. Because let's be honest, when we see contradictions or hypocrisy in others, it's quite annoying. Is anybody else willing to admit that? When when I see contradictions in somebody else, my first thought is, how can you not see how conflicted you are? How can you not see how, how inconsistent you're behaving or how inconsistent your thought patterns are? But if we could first remember our own hypocrisy and remember our own contradictions, not only would we then be able to begin the hard work of working through those but then I think we would avoid immediate judgment of others as well because if we remember our own hypocrisy if we remember the the contradictions that we are wrestling with and how difficult they are to overcome and how difficult they are even to notice then maybe we would have grace understanding that people that that we see wrestling with contradictions Maybe it's not the result of apathy. Maybe it's not the result of arrogance on their part, but we know from our own experience that maybe the contradictions they're struggling with are just the result of the fact that they're a flawed human being trying to figure out how to live life, figuring out how to be a human being living in that already-not-yet tension of the kingdom of God. It's no surprise that we are conflicted because we live in this liminal space. The kingdom of God is here in Christ Jesus and yet it's not entirely realized. Our, our scriptures time and time again give voice to that sort of tension and the kingdom that we are participants in exists in that place. It doesn't remove us from that place of tension, it exists there. And so what do we do with this? As we think about the fact that we are conflicted beings, that we have our own set of contradictions, what do we do with that? I think first of all, one thing that we learn is that we aren't overwhelmed when we stare our own contradictions in the face. We don't intend to stay in that place of hypocrisy but we aren't distraught when we face it. We are willing to, to look at it face on and, because our goal isn't perfection. As the psalmist lamented in that psalm that we prayed a couple of weeks ago, no one is good. Our goal is not perfection in our own strength, but rather our goal is to allow Christ to make us new. And so we allowed him to lead us to the place where we see our contradictions for what they are and then we can begin to work through them. Would you stand this morning? We're going to transition into a time where we share the Eucharist. The final thing I want to leave with us as we reflect upon David's life, we've been reading about David for a couple of months, and we see a lot of contradictions, we see a lot of tension, And I think in his example, what we are ultimately called to do is face the contradictions in ourselves, to face them honestly, in vulnerability, and to ask God to help us change. So we do that this morning. As we come to the table, we ask Jesus to meet us here. We invite each of you to participate with us. We'll form two lines down this center aisle You can take the elements on your own. But by way of invitation, I'd like to lead us in a prayer. It should be on the screen behind me in just a moment. Ever gracious God, you who call new worlds into being, you who make peace between the wolf and the lamb, you are wonderful even while we are caught up in our own struggle. O Lord, hear our prayer. We trust that you are with us, even in our deepest contradictions and the restless agony of our souls. You accept the praises of floods and storms, yet you hover in love over places of devastation for the complexity that is ours, for the contradictions with which we wrestle. O Lord, hear our prayer. For the difficulties in life that we blame on you, O Lord, hear our prayer. We look to you for guidance through all that is perplexing. And as we breathe together, In this moment of prayer, we ask for the patience and the wisdom to wait on you. Oh, Lord, hear our prayer. Jesus, hear our prayer. Have mercy on us, we pray. Amen. Would you join us at the table this morning?